Good day, everyone. Welcome back to the Curly Questions podcast. So, what's the headline for the show today? What's the headline in my social media feed? In episode 9 of the podcast today, we are going to discuss exactly all things headline and really question whether media drives culture or is it the other way around. To start this, I have in here David Swan, an award-winning technology reporter at The Australian, covering everything from startups to electric skateboards. Well, I first got to know David through an event as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week last year. And again by the same organiser, I attended an event where David is debating about smart devices and dumb humans. I thought it was interesting that he was arguing for the motion that smart devices are driving humans dumb. When after all, he's a tech reporter. So I thought to myself, he might be the perfect human to come give us a spiel about this chicken and egg issue. Whether culture drives media, or is it the other way around? Now, over to David to say hi to our audience, and maybe start by giving us a spiel on one thing we don't know about media. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I will clarify as well that um, I'm pretty sure I was assigned to that debate team. Uh, That wasn't my natural position. But I think as a journalist, you get good at arguing for things that you don't necessarily believe in. So yeah, my natural inclination is to think that technology does enhance our lives and, and does make us smarter in general. So I just wanted to correct the record right off the bat. One thing about media I think that people don't know is that you don't need a a journalism degree and you don't need a professional, you don't need a qualification to be a journalist. And I think the best journalists actually are people who came from real life experience. I would have loved to, you know, to be candid, not have a journalism degree and instead, given I'm a technology reporter, have a degree in computer science or um, something technology related because that would give me a depth of knowledge knowledge in my field much more than learning how to write which I think I think communication is something that pretty much comes naturally and and learning it for three or four years at university isn't going to do a lot Um, I did love my time at university and I um, you know I ran the student union there and I was very involved in extracurricular activities but if I look back at what I learned It's more about the soft skills like the networking and the work experience that I got, not learning how to write a good headline or how to craft a story. I think that kind of comes naturally if you're a storyteller. So I would like to see more people in media come from diverse life experiences rather than coming through journalism school, for example. So that's one thing that I think people should think more when it comes to media. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think, like you say, everyone is a storyteller. And it's really just about how you write, because if you write a good story, people understand it rather than writing it in a very robotic fashion. Just wanted to understand from you, how, how has media evolved, you know, based on your experience and how was it when you started and right now and how does culture actually fits in with the entire media in your day-to-day job? How does it all play out? Yeah, it's changed a lot. When I started, my first sort of experience in the media was in high school when I did work experience and I was at a newspaper in Melbourne, The Herald Sun, and I had a week there. And what it was interesting, it was in the same building that I'm working at today and now about, you know, 12, 13 years later. And the media cycle then was incredibly different. The newsroom, A, the newsroom was a lot more full of people because newspapers made a lot more money so they could hire a lot more people. Um, So there's a lot more activity in the newsrooms. But what we found as well was that the demands were a lot less on journalists because they weren't writing for online, they were writing for the newspaper. Mm. And when you're writing for a physical newspaper, there's only so many stories that can fit in there. So you're probably writing one story a day, maybe two stories a day. Um, Whereas today, I wrote, for example, four stories uh, today. 
um, because I'm, I'm writing for the newspaper, yes, I'm writing for the Australian, but we have our online website as well, obviously, and there's a constant demand there from the readers who now have the internet and they've got cable TV, they've got a whole range of places to get their news from that you need to be fast and you need to be able to, you know, cover everything off. I can't write one story a day and that's enough. It's yeah. not enough. I have to write four or five stories a day because that's what the readers demand of us now. Yeah. Um, and that's incredibly different from, you know, in a 10-year ten, ten period probably, the, the demand on us and the demand from the the audience and the culture yeah. to be constantly consuming mm-hmm. um, is, is vastly different. Yeah. Sounds like, I mean, as the culture evolves, um, we look for instant gratification. So in the same way that we look at it from a media perspective, like, hey, we want news about mm-hmm. the world, like, in a split second, like what's happening in Hong Kong, all the protests, etc. Yes. We expect that that news should be delivered to us in a matter of minutes and seconds. Yeah. Um, as we go into the topic around culture drives media, or is it the other way around? What's your thinking around that? Like, what do you think drives what? Or it's just more, you know, could be a lot of different angles. Yeah, I think in general, it's a conversation between the two that's constantly happening. I think we have seen it shift more towards the media responding to what's happening in the culture rather than the other way around, just because of social media. And we're seeing now everyone's got a voice. There's positives and negatives to that, obviously. But in general, like anyone, and you don't have to be a journalist, obviously, can have their say and can put their voice out there. And that means the media then has to respond to that. In the past, if you go back to the 1990s, for example, or earlier, the conversation that would be happening would be dictated to whatever is on the news at 6pm at night, that would then inform the conversation around the dinner table at home, or um, on the radio during the day or in the newspaper. That would drive whatever conversation was happening in the culture, I think. But now it's democratised where you and I can have a conversation on Twitter, even if we're not journalists. And then that could get picked up by anybody. It could get picked up by, you know, celebrities, could get picked up by a wider community. And you can be now part of that conversation in the way that you kind of didn't have that ability before the internet. So I think now the conversation's opened up to a lot more of um, everyday people. Yeah. And good and bad, obviously. Um, But it's... You know, in, if you're looking at it from a, a democratic perspective or a, a you know openness of the culture, I think it's it's quite a healthy thing that we can both now, you know, not just me because I'm a journalist, but you too and everyone else can have a voice. Yeah, sounds like everyone can be a reporter or journalist and in their own rights, right? The way they write, anyone yeah. telling a story, etc. So you spoke about like you know we have the freedom to talk about you know whatever that we want to, especially in a free country like Australia. What do we think about like other countries that might be a little bit more? having a different view on culture? Do we see that media is actually driving their behaviour actively? I mean, countries that's in Asia, but not necessarily Australia. Yeah, I think that's a real big tension that we're seeing play out at the moment. I think other countries are seeing the conversations that are happening elsewhere and saying, why don't we have that same level of of freedom with our own voice? And that's, it's painful. It's going to be painful, but I think it's inevitable that as globalisation continues and people continue to travel and countries continue to hopefully open up, mm-hmm. even though the last few years we've seen a bit of a movement against that and countries kind of shutting off a little bit. I think it's inevitable that, con- that the world will continue to get closer together and then we'll all be able to share the same sorts of freedoms thanks to technology. Yeah, I think, I think that day will come. Um, I, I came from Singapore, so I just arrived in Australia four years ago where I was a little bit surprised at how media is here in this country. Like, you can make fun of the Prime Minister or the politician on the major papers, and you get away with it. Yeah. You can never do that (laughs) in Singapore. 
Right. Yeah, you'll right. be sued, you'll be stalked, and the Prime Minister's office will come after you with a hammer. It's just not possible. Yeah. And as a result, I see that people tend to be a little bit too well-behaved yeah. in a way that um, it might maybe stifle creativity. You might not be able to voice a little bit more freely than usual. So that's what I see in terms of like the media and the culture playing out. Do you also, like, I mean, do you notice the same as well as you work with different people from different countries. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. I think that's a really important point because I think it's something that we forget as Australians how lucky we are that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And even travelling to United States of America, for example, obviously they have things like freedom of speech there. Yeah. But the ability to criticise, if you criticise Donald Trump, for example, if you're in the wrong bar or you're in the wrong <laughs> restaurant, that can go horribly for you. Whereas I feel like in Australia we don't think, take things too seriously and you can say whatever you want about anybody and, and get away with it. Yeah. And we value that really strongly. But it's important to remind ourselves that that's that's great and that's possible and we I think we take it for granted a lot and so until you travel overseas and I mean America is just one example but yeah you mentioned Singapore and there's a lot of countries right where you don't have that ability and it's not valued in the same way so I think we have to remind ourselves how special that is and it's it's very Australian to be able to bag whoever you want and criticize whoever you want and make fun of them and I think Hopefully technology will, and, you know, things like social media will enable those sorts of characteristics to travel into to other cultures too. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. As you mentioned around, like, the case of Donald Trump, and if you were to criticise him in the wrong bar, you actually get, you know, there might be some tension. It just reminded me of um, the terror attack in Paris on this journalist agency called Charlie. I have to. Yeah. And it feels like because the agency was highly critical of certain religion and you have a bit of backlash around it. What's your thinking around um, the episode? That was such a tragic thing, obviously, and um, I remember that really well. And uh, I just can only applaud the bravery of the cartoonists who knew what was at stake for them and they put their own values ahead of everything else. And... I know that I don't live up to that sometimes where there'll be, for example, a story that I think should be out there, but there are certain things, there are costs that are involved with that that mean that maybe I don't publish it. For example, it might burn a really important relationship that I have that means that, you know, I won't get stories from that person in the future. Or there are certain things that might hold you back from doing something. I'll tell you though, if the story is important enough, then uh, if it passes a certain bar, then I'll publish it no matter what, right? If it means I have to burn that relationship or whatever the other cost is, then I'll do it if it's important enough. With those guys, they paid the ultimate price, which is their lives for the cartoons that they they drew. Um, So I, I just have the most respect for that, honestly. And it's really sad and a shame that, you know, that that happened at all, that you can't have that freedom of creativity to be able to draw or write whatever you want without the consequence being your life. Yeah. That we're in 20, you know, 18, 19, and that that's still the case is, is tragic. Yeah. Sometimes I just wonder if the episode have actually changed the behaviour of Paris, especially when they react to certain episodes like this, because there was a very religious spin on that. Just moving away a little bit, away from the heavy topics. Yeah. I think one of the topics that was really passionate in my heart that I think that you might be able to weigh in was I used to have my own startup so I always keep in touch with a lot of startup publications online so I receive a lot of emails every day and every day when I look at my inbox almost one out of five days of the email there is always a headline this company secured X amount million of dollars in funding. Yeah. 
and the messaging was really consistent. I'm like, why, why, why is that the headline? Yeah. You know, what does it mean for people? How does it shape people? How does it shape startup founders? Because I feel like when mm. I have conversation with people in startup, you're like, it's all about funding, it's all about financing, but I'm like, what happened to your ultimate goal of starting yes. a business? So we just kind yeah. of get thoughts around it. Uh, I couldn't, um, I'm incredibly passionate about that too. And I think it's a real detriment of our industry that that story keeps being the default where it's like, raised X amount of money, values the company at X, you know, raised money from X. And I get pitched that story more than anything else, right? I think because it's, it's a few things. It's easy. So it's a number and it's kind of sexy and it means that the journalist doesn't have to do a whole lot of work in terms of digging deeper because it's just a new story in itself, right? Where it's like we raised money and that's great. But you're right. It's like, well, who cares? What does that actually mean in terms of what the company can do? You know, I've raised the money, but that's just one little aspect of what you should be doing, which is actually building something and getting the company off the ground. So I, I get frustrated, but I'm a hypocrite as well because I write those stories all the time. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, you have to turn out four stories in a day. Yeah, so that's what I'm, I'm saying, right? Is I have to write four or five a day and a certain amount of those do have to be those kind of base level, um, you know, hard news, easy stories, which are a funding round. And I just don't like that it creates maybe a false sort of sense for founders of what they should be aspiring to, which is not raising money because <laughs> raising money is, you know, you're giving part of your company away. And yes, it is really important, obviously, in most cases to, to build a business, but it's not the building of the business. That's a separate thing. And I wish I could be doing more stories, which are, you know, milestones of we hit our 5 millionth customer yeah. or our 5 millionth download of our app. That's way more meaningful than I raised, you know, 10 briefcases full of cash from some <laughs> investors. It's, it's an easy story to write. And I think it's, it is, and it is sexy as well. You know, we raised a lot of money, like that is sexy. So it's a tough one. I know I'm a hypocrite, but I wish, I want to see in the media, like the startup and tech media, more depth and more actual stories that reflect what's really going on rather than just raising money. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like um, the financing headlines is just showing a means to an end, but you don't really mm. kind of go deeper into that space. Yeah. And it seems to be quite prevalent across the industry. But it's good to know because also, I mean, we need to recognize that journalists are under pressure to churn out stories. Yeah. And sometimes we just take the easy way out as we would in all our jobs. Yeah, just so that, you know. yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wish, no, to be honest, I really wish I could just do one story uh, a week. And that story, I've spoken to 20 people to interview them and get their thoughts. Like, it's just not the reality of the industry. But in an ideal world, every story I do would have that level of weight and thought and depth to it. Um, I, I just don't have time. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can appreciate it. But just, just wanted to take a step back. Like when you plan out a story, do you think about like the message that you want to shape the people into? Or just talk, talk us through the, the top process around creating a story. Yeah. yeah, I think the main thing I think about is the story itself. So I'm not thinking about the audience because that kind of comes later. I think about who I'm talking to and then trying to get from them what their most important message is. For example, you might pitch to me, oh, we raised $1 million. Yeah. But that might be like the 10th most interesting thing about what you're actually doing. You know, What you're actually doing might be way more interesting. Yeah. Your background and your history might be more interesting. Yeah. The $1 million thing might be not even like in the top five or 10 things. Yeah. So I think the key thing for me is to make sure that I'm asking the right questions so I can get the best story out of you. Mm -hmm 
And then after that, I think about, okay, where should this go? Should it be in a Tuesday technology section of the newspaper? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a weekend story. Is it online? Is it in print? Um, maybe I do a video. You know, you think about those things after, but the mm-hmm. first thing is to make sure when I interview you, I get the best stuff out of you that I can then use later. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you just kind of like extract the essence of it and then decide yeah. what is, how is it best showcased as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, I just wanted to quickly just touch about, I think when I was in school, we always talk about like media and hype. Um, like we kind of spoke about it just now as well, about it driving, mm. hi- driving hype. Do you see any examples that also play out in, in, in the same way besides in the startup world? Yeah, definitely. I think when you're a successful startup, like particularly we look to the US when it comes to like Uber yeah. and all these names get thrown around, right? Like Airbnb yeah. and they've been really successful in their own right. But then Australia has a inclination to term their startup like the Uber of something or the Airbnb of something. Spot on. <laughs> and it's like, we don't need to do that. Yeah. Like that's a turn off as a journalist. Yeah. Yes, it makes an easy story to write like we've yeah. been talking about. But your business is inherently like not that interesting if it's just the Uber for something else yeah. or the Airbnb for something else. Like it's if you need to find a better way to explain your business rather yeah. than just trying to latch onto the hype of an established US business. Yeah. I totally agree with you because when I go for startup events or any technology event, they're like, we're the Uber for food delivery. We're the yeah. Uber for like, I don't know, meeting rooms. They're like, what's the problem you're solving? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that a solution or how, how does it look like? So it's It just kills it for me before I've even read anything else. <laughs> if, if the email pitch just says, you know, it just kills it. I it's like, I'm not interested anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, and the other thing about the hype, from the US guys is we have to stop probably lionizing them so much in general yeah. and looking to our own Australian startups as successes because they are and they're, they're not as as sexy from <laughs> sexy allergies. not as sexy as, um, as, Uber, as Uber and Airbnb for example but we need to be able to lift them up in a similar light so that we have our own Australian role models to follow yeah and where do you think that idolizing come from off of America because um, when I was in I mean when I live in Singapore we always watch Hong Kong dramas, we watch American mm. dramas and movies like, oh my God, they look so good. Yeah. And that's where you, you start at a young age, right? Because like, you look at celebrities and it looks yeah. so good when you're a 10 year old, you're like, mm, okay, I should aspire to be them. And then gradually, as you go into your adult life, you look towards the American companies. Yeah, um, yeah. They're the big boys. Yeah. Uh, how did that, you know, because that's also part of how we behave, how we live and how media portray all these celebrities as well. Yeah. What's, what's the thing? Absolutely. I think it's that. And I think it, it goes down to childhood when you're watching Hollywood movies and you're watching yeah. The Simpsons on TV. Yeah. And these things carry a lot of cachet. And I think in past decades, maybe before we were both alive, it would have been more Britain and like the UK. They're kind of culturally our you know, original fathers, if you will. And we would have looked to them as, you know, the big influence. But America is the dominant superpower after World War Two. Australia now looks to it as it's kind of not dad, but like, you know, like big influence, right? And that's not just Hollywood and entertainment, but now it's it's the companies as well. So, yeah, it would have been Britain and, and all that stuff in decades gone. But now we really look to US from childhood and then still now as adults. Yeah, I'm just sometimes I'm really surprised though, in fact, because I'm like coming from, I mean, Asia, I see a lot of great Asian companies, but I've never heard them mentioned in the Australian news. Yeah, it's a and, real blind spot. Yeah, and also I noticed um, because coming from Asia, we don't have a lot of local news. Unlike Australia, we have a lot of global news. Yeah. And then coming to Australia, I find that a lot of the news are like this, Australian news. Yeah. 
which is great. I mean, Australia is huge, but it's mostly Australian news. And it's always news about like what's happening with your neighbor and what's yeah. the big funny thing that happened rather than a serious takes on what is in the global issues. Yeah. yeah. I think you're onto something. And I think it's something that, again, you notice when you travel. If I go to, say, a San Francisco um, bar, and I've got my favorite one there that I sit at, and you realize no one's talking about, like, what Australia is doing because no one cares, right? In Australia, we all care, but we care almost too much and we act like everything's incredibly important, what's happening just locally. But then you travel and you're like, oh, wait a second, like there's this whole other world out there. It might be because we're an island and we're really far away from everything, so we're kind of insular. But, I mean, we are well-travelled as well, but I think we're lacking perspective sometimes on just how important Australia is globally because we're not very important. <laughs> Australia is still one of the G7, if I remember correctly. No, we're in the top 20, but we're falling. Like, that's we're going to be out of the top 20 soon because all these Asian countries are rising up, right, and getting bigger and more powerful. So we're probably going to be less powerful tomorrow and less powerful the next day, um, and that's going to continue. And our population is not going to be growing much anytime soon. So I think we have to remember sometimes what our place is. It's interesting to, to hear that from a journalist as well to know where our place is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> um, I just wanted to quickly touch on something that I'm, I've been thinking about in terms of like, you know, how humans, we are emotional. And sometimes I feel like maybe even the headlines uses that, you know, how, mm. and I wonder, is it by nature or is it by nurture? I think that with headlines, for example, and the stories that we tell, you have to make them play to our emotions, otherwise no one's going to read them or be affected at all. So I have to find a way to tell even the most boring, dry uh, business story. Mm -hmm. Find a way that still taps into emotions somehow to make it connect because otherwise what's the point of writing it? Because you might still read the information, but it's not going to hit you and you won't remember it and it's it's not really worth much. So even even the dry stuff, I try to at least find some element of emotion to it to make it effective. And I also do that when I interview people. When companies list, for example, on the ASX, I say, "What did you go have for dinner? You know, what did you what did you have a party afterwards? You know, what did you drink that night?" And find out how did you feel, you know, and get some of the emotion out of it because you can tell a story being like this company listed on the ASX at $25 per share and they were worth $5 million. And it's like, who cares? I'm like, how does it feel to like have ring the bell on the stock market and you have a fancy dinner where you go have champagne and you had lobster and that's awesome, you know, and your company is hitting the next stage that you started 10 years ago. And now it's a serious public company. You know, how do you feel about that? And, I try to find the emotion in everything because otherwise, what's the point? You know? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to being human and being a storyteller, right? So, mm. just not what you say just reminded me of because I've recently I've been reading a bit about finance news and deciding where to put some money into. My God, they are the most boring thing for yeah. me. Like, yeah, yeah. where do you trade? What's the market? What's the price right now? I'm like, come on, you can get more exciting than this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree fully, and that's why. I, I find that stuff boring too. That's why I try to make it interesting by telling the more human side of the story because we are all humans. And I don't know, some people get excited by the numbers. Like, uh, that's fine. I work with some of those people and that's cool for them. It's it's just, it's not what interests me. Yeah, cool. Um, Just quickly moving on to another topic. I think last year when I was quite active on Twitter, I had this question in my head, is it sports, it politics or the other way around? Because um, the prime minister stepped in on Twitter and said, 
something about they pull the plug on the SBS funding, but also talk to Optus about their World Cup fix. Like, actually, he tweeted like, can Optus please fix up their World Cup showing because that was actually having an issue. And I'm really surprised that a prime minister step in and talk about it on media. I mean, on social media to be exact. And I'm like, why even do that? <laughs> it speaks to a few things. One is our obsession with sport in Australia. I think if you're going to represent Australia at the top of the food chain, you have to at least pretend to like sport. Otherwise, no one's going to like you. I think we saw John Howard in the 1990s try to bowl a cricket ball. Um, it was horrible. Um, but at least he tried, right? And the fact that he tried, that'd be like Obama like doing a pitch at the baseball field or something like that. It's like you have to at least pay lip service to these things and say it's important to me, even if it's really not, you know. So there's something about Australia where we're sports mad. So the prime minister automatically has to be sports mad as well. You have to pretend you like a football team. You have to pretend you go for the national cricket team, things like that. Second thing is Australians like to complain and uh, that's a very Australian thing. And so for the prime minister to complain to Optus about the World Cup coverage, that's incredibly Australian. And uh, I think it's interesting that it's social media. That's what social media is enabled too, right, is you get to see the human side. I mean, I'm sure that was a PR stunt, right, where he tried to, like, make it a big deal. Yes. But it's also social media enables... We see it all the time, like celebrities complaining to brands when their flight is delayed or when, you know, Telstra or Optus are messing with their phones. They'll just tweet about it. And I hate doing that because I don't want to use my journalism, you know, stature. Yeah. Uh, I just want to be a normal person, right? So I never complain about brands on Twitter. But social media has enabled that where we see these very human sides to people like the prime minister or yeah. other celebrities mm-hmm. where they have the same problems that we all do as well, where their flight is delayed or their phone isn't working properly. Yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't see the prime minister writing in the newspaper or um, talking on TV about Optus and the, and the coverage, but you'll see him tweet about it because that's what social media is for, is for whinging about stuff. I like how you say it because... You know, just like mentioned around, like, in Australia, it's very common that we love complaining. It's just part of our second nature. I'm like, wow, this, you see culture playing out in media, right? I mean, the Prime Minister is just doing exactly the same thing, whinging about, you know, Optus and World Cup that's not happening today and, and just normalising it in a way, like, it's okay to complain yeah. because I'm the leader of the country, I do the same. Yeah, exactly. What's the problem? And, you know, you just become the norm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe Donald Trump's gone too far in normalising whinging on Twitter. <laughs> And it's hard to keep up with what he's whinging about every day. But at the same time, it's pretty cool that we can have uh, insight into people's what's going on in their brains, right, every day when normally you would have it through 10 filtered layers of the press secretary and everything getting approved. Well, we can just see instantly what people are thinking and what's on their minds. And, yeah, it's good and bad, but, um, you know, in a lot of ways it it is a cool thing. Yeah, but I also think that it helps promote uh, critical thinking culture as well because I feel like people debate about it. Yeah. And you see a whole barrage of comments, especially on, like, Trump's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you see um, that rich opinion that coming through and sometimes you're like, these people are too left or too right. Yeah. yeah, that's the flip side sometimes I think is this group think where one person has a cool opinion about something and then it becomes everybody's opinion automatically. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, we, the media was gatekeepers for a long time too and maybe yeah. the only valid opinion was the one that appeared in the newspaper pages. So I don't know. I just I get frustrated sometimes when I see a, a Twitter pile on, for example, where everybody's criticizing something, and it's like get it your own opinion. You know, have some critical have some critical thought and think, have 
have something of your own to say rather than just kind of copying what other people are saying. Yeah, and jumping onto the bandwagon thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think it's great that you actually think about like, hey, is this person, what, what the person is saying, is it really true? Is it really accurate? And you yourself, and as you're consuming news as mm. a normal consumer, mm. how do you apply that? Like, how do you actually apply some mindfulness, awareness? You know, what, what are the blind yeah. spots you think about? Like, hey, is this really accurate? Is this... Yeah. I think the key for me, and it's always been this way, is having a diverse media diet, if you will. And that in terms of what you consume with your news, I would tell people to not just read my newspaper, for example, but like read our rival newspapers. Um, Maybe don't buy them necessarily. You can buy them if you want. It's okay. Um, And still come back to me after that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Have subscriptions to three or four different publications. Just make sure you're reading more than one source, I think is the most important thing. And same with your Twitter feed and your Facebook feed, making sure that you're following a diverse range of voices and not just everyone from the same bubble or the same, um, you know, left or right, but just following a whole bunch of different people to make sure that, you know, you've got checks and balances there of, of what you're reading because you don't want to just have one source of news, yeah. whether that's Fox News or it is like The Guardian or whatever. You want to be reading widely so that you can then be um, having a range of voices and, and be thinking more critically about it. Yeah, sounds good. And it reminds me of, I think in one of my earlier episodes, I spoke about this big restaurant that never existed in, in the UK. It's called a Shed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people are like, oh, I love, really, really love this restaurant, but they've never, ever been there. Yeah. I met that guy who, uh, who did that. He just did it as like a big joke, really. <laughs> it just turned out to be a really big joke on media itself. Yeah. And it got me questioning, like, wow, are we followers? Are we like blind followers? That because people say this is so good on media, yeah. like on TripAdvisor, I'm going to be like, oh, I tried calling, it was so good. And, you know, but really, have you ever been there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting one. I think that's a human nature thing obviously where we want to feel like we're all connected to each other and that you know we're not making bad choices um so there's some very human things that i think technology can only really go so far in terms of helping or or help preventing so it's just you're right being aware of those things and making sure that you know when not being uh sheep as much as possible (laughs) not being a sheep yeah (laughs) like a mentality as well do you have any other examples because i'm just mindful of time at the moment Um, do you have any examples around where i mean it could be multi-factorial as well of you know cultural driving media and the other way around what's do you have any other examples that you want to talk through yeah i think i've seen the impact when i write a negative story about Mm. somebody and that then becomes the defining narrative of them because my story is the one that's in the newspaper and they can disagree with it but there's something that still carries a lot of weight for something to be printed in a newspaper and I've learned that the hard way where if you make a mistake like if I spell somebody's name wrong or on a I don't think I've ever got a fact wrong but if I ever got a fact wrong for example trying to change that narrative once it's already out there is really really hard because we're still in an age and I don't know how long this will last for where the newspaper whatever's printed there is sort of seen as the truth and it still carries that weight a lot of the time and if someone disagrees with that Mm -hmm. then them trying to correct the record and make sure that people see their perspective as well is challenging so I always try to make sure you know and I will always do go to 
whoever I'm writing about for comment from them. But there's just been times where, you know, I'll write an article about somebody and then that becomes part of their Wikipedia page, for example, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting thing where I've seen the power of words and that they still carry a lot of weight and can still help define what an issue is or who a person is. Yeah. I think we previously touched about, like, you know, editing it after that. So, like, some people, when you read the news they just remember the first bit of the news that was presented to them. And that's what we call anchoring biases, right? Just anchor to the first bit of the news. And even mm. though you kind of correct that, they don't remember what was corrected. Yeah. And just remember that as what it is. And what, whatever it is, you just define that person, right? Because you yeah. are who you are being written to and who is known in the world. Yeah. Like how we think about our prime minister is what shown in the media. Or how we think about certain companies is what shown in the media. So that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it's something I try to think about a lot. I have to try try and remind myself of, you know, what I'm writing. It's not just a story. It's really important to whoever's in it. And that's why with the good news stories, I'll often see them framed on somebody's wall or, you know, like they'll print them out and keep them because that means a lot to them. But the flip side is if it's a critical story or something negative, that can have a real impact on people's lives. Yeah, cool. Um, I just have one last bit of question because, um, you know, as the technology age, we get more and more exposed to media and news. As part of um, the election in the US, we also, there was also exposure about um, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. And it feels like people are just, I don't really know whether people really care about their privacy being exposed or they're just desensitized to it because I just want to consume the biggest headline on the media, I don't really care. You know, it doesn't come to me that, hey, actually I'm being monetized for all the money. So what's your thinking around around it? Like, does privacy really matters anymore? <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's pretty much uh, dead, sadly. Just from what I've, it's, it's hard because I, I live in a world where the people I'm interviewing every day, the people who are still building the technology are optimists still and they think that Mm. it's really important to bake privacy into certain things and that we should care but then I go to the pub um, with my friends and they don't care they couldn't care less nobody cares in the real world I think it's good that the people building the stuff care Mm -hmm. I hope they care more and pay more attention to it I think as far as I'm concerned, the horse has already bolted in terms of the users caring. And I think, but it's a good point that you raise about, you know, we are the product because with things like social media, that's true. It just underlines the importance of paying for news, I think, so that you're not getting it for free Uh, because then you are the product, right? If you're just using Facebook and getting headlines from there, if you have a subscription to a publication that you like, then you're paying for that product. And I think that's a transaction that, more people should make and that we can all agree on. Uh, but yeah, I think privacy, yeah, in 2019, it's not really something that we should be expecting. Yeah, I remember that I downloaded um, my data from Facebook and I just kept it in a folder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never ever have a second eye on it again. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't really care now that the news are over because at one point when the news was so hot about Facebook mm. and, oh, is it Facebook or is it Cam- yeah, Cambridge? Yeah. And you're like, oh shit, I gotta make sure that I don't fall into the trap. But now you're like, it's not talking about it anymore in the media. I don't really care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember downloading the Facebook file of, you know, you could download the file of everything it has on you. Yes. A lot of the stuff was wrong. Like it had this like descriptions of the bands that I liked and like the, my tastes for advertisers, yeah. what sorts of things I was interested in. 
a lot of it was wrong. And I was like, come on, like, I thought you knew me pretty well, but it turns out you don't really. So I was like, you know, my privacy has gone, but also it's got this like incorrect picture of who I was. So it's kind of an interesting. Yeah. Thing. And advertisers are probably not using that correctly for you. And then yeah. probably not selling you the right thing. I was like, I don't like Tom Jones. Like, I don't know, I don't know where you're getting that information from. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. I wrote a big piece about how I deleted Facebook and I tried to affect the culture by saying, you know, I deleted Facebook, right. but another instance of me being a hypocrite, I guess, cause I reinstalled it in like three days. <laughs> and you're still on Facebook. I am still on Facebook. I didn't want to miss out on any parties, you know, all the good parties that were happening on Facebook. So, um, yeah. I lasted about three days. So that was an unsuccessful campaign for me, but, um, maybe there'll be more successful ones in the future. Yeah. It's a good start though. I think we're just about coming to the end of the episodes. I'm just wondering if you have anything else to add. No, just I think I would encourage everybody to subscribe to media publications. I think in 2019, we're still seeing some newspapers struggling to survive and some publications struggling to survive. So I think putting your money where you think it's, you know, where you want to consume media is a really, really important thing because our job is hard and expensive and especially for investigative stuff, um, it's it's costs money so I would just encourage people to subscribe to publications I like how you said it our job is hard and expensive <laughs> well the money doesn't go to me I don't get paid no, much there's a lot of people in the food chain yeah 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 it goes to a good video and telling a good story yeah. it's not just um, talking about it you know it's a yeah. lot of visuals so we yeah. definitely should support the media I mean I personally I think I paid for The Guardian or something I can't remember some some UK magazines okay but it's a good point that you raised I'm like maybe I should start looking at other media and see you know where I could put my money in yeah recommend it yeah, yeah. that's great Um, just before we end off just where can where can our audience find you like where's the best place to, to spot you parties or I live else? in uh, Brunswick uh, so at the local pub there I've got my little seat on the corner also Twitter is a good place I'm at Swan Legend on Twitter with an underscore so Swan underscore legend it started as a joke and then it became a serious thing and kind of Facebook feel free to add me as well because I'm back on Facebook now after yeah. that three day hiatus obviously so yeah Twitter and then um, in the newspaper in the Australian I'm also on ABC Radio National every two weeks and uh, on Sky News every two weeks as well wow awesome great Thanks, Legend. Oh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks Cheers. Yeah.